That is Pastor Chris's backpack. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, he came into our Tuesday morning staff meeting and set it down in my office. And uh, Pastor Henry came in and attempted to pick it up and move it. Thought better of it have, just having had uh, hernia surgery. Jen then came in and commented on how heavy it was, and we all sort of weighed in on it, pun intended. I remember back when my kids were in school, this right here is exactly what they would carry around with them every day, all day. Whenever I would pick them up off the kitchen floor, I was convinced that by the time they graduated, every single one of them would have permanent damage to their spine. The weight was almost unbearable, and it's no different today. You know what? This thing is pretty heavy. Let's say probably 20, 25 pounds. It's limiting. It's tiring. It's a burden. But it's common. Everyone in school carries a backpack like that, similar to that one, and maybe that's the reason guys never ask girls to carry their books anymore. <laughs> you ever sat in the school parking lot and observed junior hires going into school? A lot of adolescents are walking around looking pretty depressed, shoulders wilting, neck bent, head hung low. Arms dangling powerless by their sides, shuffling their feet, just looking for the next place where they can drop their baggage, find some relief. Have you ever tried carrying their weight around for one day? It's a lot different than when you and I were in middle school or high school. In a whole lot more ways than that one. Who's going to take the weight off their shoulders? Let's cut to the chase, shall we? Let's stop beating around the backpack. All of us have a load of baggage that we'd like to trade in. But for some reason, we just keep carrying it around. And it's killing us. It's limiting us. It's making us depressed and depriving us of the relief that God offers in his son, Jesus. How many of you, for example, in this room this morning would admit that you need to let go of a burden that's breaking your back? It's just rhetorical. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you believe that it can happen? How many of you really want it to happen? You might be saying to yourself, it would take a miracle to lift the burden I'm carrying off my shoulders it would take an absolute miracle. Well, maybe deep down in your gut, you can personally relate to the words of one Old Testament lamenter who said these words, he has filled me with bitterness, he has made me drunk with wormwood, and he has broken my teeth with gravel. He's made me cower in the dust, and my soul has been rejected from peace. I've forgotten happiness, and so I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. That was Jeremiah. You know those words? If so, you're right. It will take a miracle to lift your burden. And I'm not just telling you stories. The account that I'm about to share with you this morning is no mere story. It is absolute truth. 
It's God-breathed reality. And if it communicates anything at all to us, it ought to communicate that the miracle we need is available to us. It's possible for us. And it's possessable. No matter how heavy or how long you've carried the weight, no matter how hopeless or helpless or friendless you think you've become, no matter how irreversible you think your situation currently is, the relief that you seek, the friend that you need, the Savior you're searching for is Jesus the Christ. The miracle we need is the mercy of Christ. There's this miraculous snapshot of such hope contained in John chapter 5, if you would like to turn there in your Bibles. Recently, something sparked the memory of this text in my mind and the poignant question Jesus brings to this man. And so in light of Thanksgiving, I decided today to revisit this story today as a means to point us to the mercy and grace of Christ for which we can be abundantly thankful we can be. So John chapter 5. Follow with me as I read first nine verses. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well, and he picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. This miracle is flooded with mercy from beginning to end. And wherever the tidewaters of God's mercy crash against the resistant walls of the unmerciful world, all kinds of elements get washed up to the surface, don't they? And some of them are pretty ugly. It seems paradoxical that in the midst of an outpouring of mercy here in this text that Jesus would meet with an outpouring of hatred, as we'll see in a few moments. Yet that is precisely what happens, what Jesus did that day in Jerusalem, what he said in the aftermath of an act of mercy upon a hurting man literally, literally cost him his life. The religious elite, the self-appointed icons of righteousness, never forgave him after this, never Look at verses 16 through 18. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is why John's gospel is sometimes referred to as the gospel of the rejection. The gospel of the rejection. In his careful selection of miraculous signs, John chooses this particular one to show how the tide of Jesus' popularity up to this point began to turn against him. From the moment that he showed mercy to this incurable cripple and claimed that God was his own father, they sought to kill him. And interestingly enough, it happened at a feast. That's what it says in verse 1. Happened at a feast. Which one? We don't know. Doesn't say. We do know that there were three feasts of obligation which every adult male Jew within 15 miles of Jerusalem was required to attend. That was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Identifying the feast is not really that important for our purposes in this text. One thing is certain, though, Jesus didn't disregard the obligations of worship, did he? He was there. He didn't consider them a duty to be performed, but a delight to be embraced. And on this day, toward the northeast section of the city near the temple, Jesus deliberately enters a place that most people in his day would do their best to avoid. A place where the incredibly needy and the desperately hurting people gathered, longing and hoping for some relief from their pain. It is here that the tidal wave of mercy sweeps over a man who never expected to find it. And in the presence of Christ's mercy, the first thing we see here is the evidence of the world's misery. The evidence of the world's misery. In the first three verses again, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, there's a sheep gate. By the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda and having five porticos. In these, this is the key thing. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. In the midst of this city, swollen with people to attend the feast. They're celebrating a religious feast. All these feasts, by the way, that they celebrated pointed to the Messiah that was to come. They were literally celebrating an awaited Messiah. So in the midst of this city, swollen with people celebrating this feast, a great crowd, it says, hundreds of sick people, blind, crippled, paralyzed, were gathered in the alcoves of a double pool called Bethesda, just outside the temple, waiting for the moving of the waters, it says. A superstitious, last-ditch effort for healing. What a contrast. Think about it for a moment. Picture it in your minds if you can possibly do that. The answer to their desperate need was what the temple stood for. God. And yet these hurting people were denied entrance to that temple because of their affliction. And deprived of mercy by the keepers of that temple. 
their feet had worn a path around the needy and not toward them. The temple keepers had clearly forgotten what God had established as his path of righteousness. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Well, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Even in Zechariah chapter 7 Verses 9 to 11 says, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan or the stranger or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. It's a sad verse. What a reminder this scene here that we're looking at is of the present world's spiritual infirmity. Hundreds and hundreds of people in desperate need, spiritually impotent to heal themselves, without strength, unable to deal with the basic functions of life, people who are weak, people who are oppressed, people who are spiritually blind, emotionally limping through life, paralyzed by their fear of what's going to happen. Their spirits are withered, their hopes are dried up, and their hearts atrophied through years and years and years of neglect, grasping at straws, flocking to cults, seeking out mediums, seeking out spirit guides, pagan rituals to find relief from their hurts, waiting for the modern moving of the waters when what they truly need is a relationship with Christ. But so often the church is so busy celebrating in the sanctuary that it neglects the needs of those dying in the ditch. This man is a picture of the world's misery right in our midst, and we find first that his faith was groundless because it was steeped in superstition. He was waiting for the moving of the waters for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first after stirring up of the water stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, I just need to tell you that some of the best manuscripts that we have don't contain verses, the end of verse 3 and verse 4. If you have a Bible that does this, you will notice that the end of verse 3 and all the way to the end of verse 4, there are brackets around those words. That's to indicate that in most of our current manuscripts that we have, they don't contain these verses. Now, it's impossible to tell what all this was about, but it's likely that the pool was merely spring-fed and the water intermittently bubbled up and people superstitiously believed that an angel stirred the water and the apparent local tradition was that the first one in after the stirring of the water would be healed. Now we don't know, that's just conjecture, conjecture. But the fact of the matter is nowhere in scripture do we find a precedent for such a practice. And frankly, it seems like a cruel contest to me for those who were desperately ill, that they're all vying for the first place position to get into that water. But when God's people neglect to reach the hurting, the hurting inevitably reach for anything. They opt for a faith that's groundless. Something else we find here in verse 5 is that his condition was helpless. 
Look at verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for, say it, 38 years. How many of you are 38 or younger? Raise your hand. 38 or younger. This means that you've been sick all your life to this point if you were in this man's position. He had an intense need and he had had it for a long, long time. And so his outlook was hopeless. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, another one steps down before me. There was no one to help him. After 38 years of discouragement, 38 years of, maybe 38 years, of coming to this pool, he had pretty much given up on ever getting well because he didn't have anybody to put him in there and he couldn't get there himself. He'd given up on religion. He had lost faith in people who were only out for themselves. He had lost all hope. He knew intimately the emptiness and the loneliness of despair. The words of David at an extreme low point in his own life might vividly describe the man's plight here. David wrote in the Psalms, Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. Psalm 142, verse 4. There's no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. No one regards me. You know, psychologists would likely label David as suffering from this thing called learned helplessness. This is the viewpoint of people who are constantly the victim. I was reading these excerpts from a, from a book by psychologist Martin Seligman, who wrote a book called Learned Optimism. I mean, it's not a Christian book, but it's very good in, in some of the things that it depicts about how people, well, he actually discovered this thing called learned helplessness and then wrote a book, Learned Optimism. Whether you're a pessimist or an optimist, this is how, what he says. It depends on how you explain bad events to yourself. Pessimistic people tend to view their problems through three lenses, three lens perspective. Now, see if this marks any of you or somebody you know. It's like this man. Pessimistic people who have learned helplessness always view their problems as personal. In other words, it always happens specifically to me. It's always me. It's the poor me syndrome. Secondly, it's always permanent or perpetual. It's like it always happens to me. It will never change. And thirdly, they view it as pervasive. Everything I do, every part of my life, pervasiveness, it carries over into everything. I mean, I'm just, I might as well just crawl into a hole somewhere because I don't have anybody to put me in the pool when the healing's offered, right? Woe is me. That's never going to change. And it affects my entire life. That's the outlook of many people in the world today. You can see it on Facebook all the time. Hopeless, empty, in need of mercy. His faith was groundless. His condition was helpless, for sure, 
But his outlook was hopeless. But here in Jesus' presence, his arguments were pointless. They were pointless. Fact is, Jesus was about to overcome every one of those things we just talked about. Everyone. Jesus always does that, by the way, if people let him. Will you let him? Jesus' intentional desire to dispense mercy not only brings us face to face with the extent of the world's misery, but secondly, it also places an emphasis on the Lord's sensitivity to it. Look at verses, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? No matter how you slice it, this miracle is a picture of grace. Verse 8 says, Jesus said to him, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. What a great miracle. It's a picture of God's grace. The path that Jesus took at this celebration did not bypass the hurting people gathered at the pool, but it made its way directly toward them. And moreover, it went specifically to this certain man. Verse 5. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been in that condition a long time, and he spoke to him. He said to him. Now note Jesus' intentional action in verse 6. He saw, he knew, he spoke. He saw that hurting man. He knew he'd been carrying around this baggage, this weight for a long, long time. He knew the man was tired. And he knew the man was sick and tired of being sick and tired. But he also knew that he had to draw the man out of his learned helplessness and his self-pity and his depression. And he does something here that strikes at the heart of where the man truly was in his heart. Jesus said, and note the question well, do you wish to get well? Do you want to get well? Literally, are you willing to be made whole? Not simply do you wish for it, like, oh, I wish this would happen, but do you really desire it? He was asking the man if he was willing to put down the backpack that he'd been struggling with for 38 years. Now, you might be thinking, that's an odd question for Jesus to ask. Why wouldn't he want to put it down? Why wouldn't this guy want to get well? Hold on to that thought for a moment because we're going to address that in a minute. But Jesus' question obviously had a purpose, right? A purpose which I believe is instructive to us as we attempt to bring the gospel to bear in other people's lives that might be in his condition. Before this man could be healed, he had to want to be healed. He had to be willing to do what Jesus asked him to do in order to receive the healing. That's the first rule of giving people help, right, Henry? Counseling? You can't help people that don't want help. They have to want the help before you can do them any good. To be honest with you, I've dealt with a lot of people who are carrying around a lot of garbage in their lives and baggage, long-time garbage that you would think that they want to let go of, but the fact is they don't want wholeness bad enough to do what Christ asked them to do. William Barclay remarks, he says, the first essential toward receiving the power of Jesus is to have an intense desire for it. Jesus says, do you really want to be changed? If, if in our innermost hearts we are well content to stay as we are, there can be no change for us. Notice that this man never answered Jesus with a yes. 
Instead, he gave him a litany of excuses. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another one steps down in before me. May I suggest to you that there are people who do not want to leave their misery behind. They don't. People sometimes remain so long in their sin, so long in their bitterness, so long in their anger and resentment that they have no real desire to get over it. And you think that'd be odd, but their will becomes as paralyzed as their spirit. They're quite content to be comfortable in their pain, if you can believe that. Listen to the words of Mark Buchanan from his book, The Rest of God. He says, not everyone wants to get well. It's the most natural thing to befriend your sickness, even after long association to depend upon it. Imagine any of the people Jesus heals. Their entire lives all have taken shape around their injuries or their diseases. Sickness can actually steal the place of God. It can become the sick person's center, the touchstone by which a person defines himself or herself. Illness is a tyrant with huge territorial ambitions. It's a seductress with large designs. It wants not only the sick person's body, but it wants his heart and his mind also. It wants to be his all-consuming passion. No wonder Jesus once asked this man, do you want to get well? Because maybe the man didn't. Strange as it sounds, maybe his sickness had become his haven because not everyone wants to get well. He'd been in this predicament for 38 years. It's a long time to carry a backpack around. But at some point in time, the backpack becomes part of who you are and you don't distinguish it anymore. If you lose the backpack, you lose yourself. Think about it. 38 years of monotony. 38 years of futility. 38 years of self-pity. 38 years of poisonous envy. 38 years of secret pride. 38 years of never being able to work, travel, make love, cook, care for children, or fix an ox cart. 38 years of life without options. 38 years of life without obligations. He carries the burdens, yes, says one author, but one he's never carried is the weight of others' expectations for 38 years. And then Jesus shows up one day and changes all of that. One word from Jesus, and all 38 years fall behind the man, vanish in a blink, and a future he stopped daring to imagine stands vivid and solid before him. He could do all the things he never could do before and ever wanted to do now. And now, the man can work and pay taxes. <laughs> and now he can marry and take on domestic responsibilities. And now he can build a home and fix its roof when it leaks. And, and shim the door when it skews crooked. And now he relinquishes the unique status suffering bestows on the man and enters the anonymity that comes with being well. Now he loses the strange privilege 
of sickness and takes up the everyday obligations of health. He's just like everybody else in the world now. We expect things from him. Jesus says, do you want to get well? See, restoration, Buchanan says, shocks the system. It alters not just our health. It alters our world. All that we establish to placate or indulge or accommodate our sickness disintegrates with those stark words, take up your pallet and walk. Not everyone wants to get well. Do you want to get well? Jesus asked that question. Do I want to get well? Jesus asked that question. That's the question, isn't it? The spiritual parallel here is undeniable. It's undeniable the Jews had become so spiritually dull to their misery and hypocrisy that when Jesus, the Redeemer they had been waiting for, comes on the scene, they flatly chose to refuse him rather than receive him. Just skip ahead a little bit in John chapter 5 and look at verse 39. Jesus calls them to account. He says to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Verse 40 says it. You don't want to get well. You're unwilling to come to me so that you can be well. They were unwilling to be made whole. So it begs the question, what kind of baggage are you holding today that you've been carrying around for far too long a time? Maybe it's not 38 years. Maybe it's 10 years. Maybe it's two weeks. What kind of baggage is it? Bitterness, unforgiveness, an addiction that you are content to live with? An immoral relationship that needs to be severed, but you're unwilling to do it. Do you want to be made whole, Jesus says. Do you? Jesus is asking us point blank, do you wish to get well? He's not asking you if you have enough faith. He didn't ask that. Because you probably don't. He's not asking if you've got the ability to get well, because you certainly don't. He's simply asking you to be honest with yourself. Do you really want what he has to give? Don't give him excuses. He doesn't want them. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your attention. He wants your worship because worthy is the lamb who was slain. And he wants your obedience and mine. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus said to him, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. You know, Jesus' words possessed the power to cure what no physician could rectify. He simply commanded the man to do precisely what he had been unable to do for 38 years, to get up and walk. There was no pronouncement here by Jesus that his faith had healed him. There was no healing touch from Jesus. The man's enablement was rooted and grounded in the Savior's simple word. Rise up, take up your pallet, 
and walk. What's Jesus saying to you? What's he saying to me? Rise up, release your bitterness and forgive. Rise up, give me your addiction and live. Rise up, take up my yoke and find rest for your soul. You see, Jesus is not requiring you and I to do anything more incredible than he required of this man. Let me ask you something. Do you think that it's any harder for you to believe that you can forgive your spouse or your child or your neighbor or your enemy than it was for that man to think that he could get up and walk after 38 years of sickness? Jesus, just take Jesus at his word. The miracle he's offering you is a miracle of mercy. And that's merciful. He didn't get what he deserved. Jesus just gave him mercy. Had the man not taken Jesus at his word, he would have never attempted to stand up, would he? He would have continued in the learned helplessness, the excuses. But he did what Jesus asked him to do. And immediately, the scripture says, the man became whole. I like that. Immediately, the man became whole. Wasn't gradual. Wasn't partial. Wasn't temporal. It was instant and it was complete. He became whole. Let me tell you something. If you take Jesus at his word, that's what he will do to your heart. Immediately. Your heart will be whole. That's what the scriptures promise. In the Old Testament, Isaiah prophesied that in the days of the Messiah, the lame will leap like a deer. It's both interesting and sad to me that while the Jews celebrated in the courts of the temple, overflowing with priests, that the Messiah they awaited was being revealed on a porch near a pool overflowing with outcasts. And appropriately, the outpouring of his mercy was happening on a Sabbath day. Appropriately, he was giving them rest. But ironically, we find that in the presence of the Messiah's mercy, we encounter something else. The enslavement of religious bigotry. Verse 9, second part of the verse. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. After 38 long years of physical paralysis, the man is released of his burden, and the first thing he encounters is the religious police, who instead of marveling at the miracle and celebrating his miraculous cure, they're writing him up for breaking one of their man-made laws. God didn't say don't carry your pallet on the Sabbath. Man said that. God said, remember the Sabbath and honor it. What does that mean? Well, that's another sermon. 
These verses would be hilarious if it weren't for the serious damage that they cause to people's lives who are seeking hard after God and totally missing him because of religious bigotry. They didn't care about the incredible change that had happened to this man, only that he wasn't following the rules. Note the exchange in verse 10. The Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath, it's not permissible for you to do what you're doing. That he said to him, you made me well, was the one who said, pick up your pallet and walk. See, he repeatedly tried to draw their attention to his new state of being. He's pointing them back to the miracle. But they missed it completely. They ignored it completely. They didn't miss it. They ignored it. They focused on trivialities instead of truth. And they cared more about protocol than they cared about the person. And that's how they could carry out the greatest crime in human history later on and crucify Jesus while strictly paying attention to the legalistic detail of the law that they couldn't enter the praetorium on the, on the Sabbath day. But they could accuse Jesus and want him dead. Someone wisely said, legalism makes apostasy easy. Has anything changed in 2,000 years of religion? Jesus nailed that kind of stuff to the wall. In Luke chapter 11, in verse 42, Jesus said these words to the Pharisees. He said, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Verse 45, one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said to them, Woe to you, lawyers, as well. For you weigh men down with heavy burdens, hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even lift or touch the burdens with one of your fingers. They were heaping the backpacks on the people. Legalism constitutes the very yoke of bondage. The burden, the heavy backpack that Jesus came to free us from by his offer of grace. And too many people miss that. But some of you might be thinking right now, shall we turn a blind eye to sin and contone wrong behavior so that grace might increase? No way, the Bible says. Jesus came to put an end to sin. The heaviest burden we carry is sin. That's what Jesus wanted you to get rid of. And only he could take it. How can his true followers continue to live in sin when Jesus came distinctly to forgive us of it and to remove its guilt from us? It's like picking up the baggage again after we've already laid it down. And that's what Jesus seeks to bring to this man's attention. And in the wake of this miracle of mercy, Jesus draws the man in to recognize one final element here, the, the element of personal responsibility personal responsibility look at verse 14 afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him behold you have become well do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you and the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well and Jesus sought this man out a second time Twice in this text, Jesus intentionally seeks out this man. In his mercy, Jesus freed the man from his physical prison 
But now, see, Jesus wasn't content to just do that. But now Jesus appeals to something immensely more important, the man's spiritual need. And up to this point in the narrative, there is no indication that the man had experienced any spiritual change in his heart whatsoever. His body was healed, but nothing is said about his soul. Friends, there is a weight heavier and more debilitating than physical suffering. The real mercy here, the most significant revelation about Christ to grasp here, is that Jesus' primary interest is not in rejuvenating cells, but in restoring souls. And in the two millennia since he came, his interest has not changed. Yes, he wants to relieve the weight of our suffering when you care, that we carry around, but he's a lot more interested in removing the weight of sin that's going to destroy your soul in eternity. As one writer bluntly points out, every healed person ultimately dies. Then what? Jesus didn't want to leave it at then what? Physical ailments are nothing compared to the devastating effect of spiritual paralysis. How easily we are tormented by our physical ailments and discomforts, yet how seldom do we feel tormented by the weight of our own sin? Are we as quick to seek spiritual restoration as we are to pursue physical relief? What good will it be, Jesus said, for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul. Verse 14 again. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And you're thinking, what could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? Answer, an eternity in punishment. Jesus says, stop sinning. Leave it off. Leave it behind. That's the real baggage you're carrying. It was Jesus' closing word on more than one occasion. John chapter 8, verse 11, the woman caught in adultery. Pharisees want to stone her to death. Jesus doesn't condone what she did. Jesus asked her, where are your accusers? Are there any? And she said, no one. And then he says to her, what? I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Don't keep sinning. Go. Sin no more. It was his closing word because he knows the horrible effects of sin that is left unresolved. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Amen? Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 6.23. So let me close by asking you this question. What kind of baggage are you carrying around? Let it go. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? As I read Psalm 55, verse 22, I'd like the worship team to come up. Get ready for our closing song. Psalm 55 Verse 22 says this, Throw your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the godly to be upended. And again, I'm going to ask you, what kind of baggage are you dragging through life this morning? I beg you, 
You want to have a really great Thanksgiving? Let Jesus relieve you of that baggage. Lay it down. If you need a miracle today, Jesus is the place to turn because the miracle you need is the mercy of Christ. And I'm just going to ask you, if you've got a burden to lay down, you just lay it down where you sit and give your burden over to him. Do you want to be made well?